0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: This isn't the first time a national crisis has hit during an election year. Weeks before voting began in 1812, President James Madison fled Washington as British troops advanced on the Capitol. Madison's wife Dolly, a French doorkeeper, and Paul Jennings, his 15-year-old personal slave, were left behind to salvage the silver and a portrait of George Washington. Then they abandoned the presidential mansion. The Brits helped themselves to dinner and wine from cut-glass decanters before torching the White House. But a heavy thunderstorm saved the building from destruction, and Madison was re-elected. With 206 days to go, this is checks and balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how do you hold an election in the middle of a pandemic? Statewide elections in Wisconsin this week showed just how hard it is to manage the logistics of democracy during an epidemic and sparked bitter partisan fighting over changes to the way votes are cast. Meanwhile, the most expensive campaigns in political history have had to rip up their plans and start again as they move entirely online. In this episode, we'll talk to election officials in Wisconsin and hear how campaigns unfolded during the Spanish flu pandemic. We'll also try to figure out how Bernie Sanders dropping out changes the presidential race. As ever, I'm joined by Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and by John Fazman, The Washington Correspondent. Both of them locked down in separate places. Charlotte, how are things with you?
2: I'm doing well. My husband and I decided to move to the suburbs last week. It's about 10 miles from the border of New York City, so not too far. But the world is my son's trampoline, and it was increasingly difficult to keep him and my daughter in our apartment all day long. Every time I took them out for a walk, my two-year-old would caress the nearest door handle and this feels like a bit of an improvement well,
3: i'm glad you've got a taste of freedom john Fazman. how are you doing up in the woods we are good up in the woods one advantage of being up here is there's plenty of room for the kids to run around today is a cloudy and rainy day though so we're indoors which means i expect a sort of lord of the fly situation by mid-afternoon
2: how are you John Priddo, it's been so interesting to see this news of Boris Johnson over the past few days.
1: Yeah, well, I'm locked down in London, the other side of the Atlantic from you guys. And yeah, but everybody here is worried about the prime minister. He's been in intensive care for a couple of days. The latest news doesn't seem to be so bad. He's not on a ventilator. But obviously, that's a big concern for everyone here. Hope he gets better soon. Thanks, John. You and Donald Trump have both sent Boris Johnson their best wishes. Let's move on to the drama in Wisconsin this week. This is an election podcast, and this week we're really back on electoral politics because COVID-19, which we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, and electoral politics collided this week in Wisconsin. John Fasman, you've been talking to people there.
3: Tell us about what happened in Wisconsin this week. So Wisconsin held not just its presidential primary this week, but an election for a number of statewide positions, including some judgeships. So there was a lot at stake in this election for both parties, and there was conflict over how to hold the election. Tony Evers, the Democratic governor, at first was reluctant to postpone it, which irritated a lot of Democrats. And then the day before the election, he decided to cancel in-person voting. Republicans challenged that move. It went to the district court, which sided with the Republicans. It was appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court held that essentially he could not make the change he wanted to make that soon. So it was a real goat rodeo. It was chaos. I suppose the one saving grace of what happened in Wisconsin is that it happened early enough and was bad enough that I hope it prompts other states to start thinking very seriously about how to hold an election during a pandemic. I spoke to two members of Wisconsin's election commission on election day. You'll hear from Ann Jacobs, who is a Democrat from Milwaukee, and Dean Knudsen, the commission's chair, who's a Republican from Western Wisconsin.
4: The polls are open across the state. I think things are going pretty smoothly under the circumstances. We've made a lot of changes and accommodations to try to do this as safely as possible. This election is about much more for us than the presidential primary or even our statewide Supreme Court race. This is the day in the spring when we elect city council members, mayors, school board members, county board members, and so on across the state. Nearly 4,000 different elections are happening right now today.
0: There are massive lines. They're out the door, down the street, around the corner, through the park. To get into the voting site that's closest to me, and this is true across the five voting sites for the city of Milwaukee.
3: How many are there in a typical election year?
0: 180.
3: And why so few?
0: The city of Milwaukee had such a shortage of poll workers that they decided to consolidate and process people with the election workers they had and try to do so as safely as they could.
4: In the city of Milwaukee, the executive director and the commission decided to go down from 180 polling sites to just five. That was a decision that they made completely on their own. To give you contrast with that in Madison, which is about 40% the population, they went from around 90 down to around 65. I think they have 65 or 66 going right now.
0: As the pandemic was, continuing and everything was getting worse, it became more and more clear that holding this election was a not ideal situation. The governor went to the legislature to ask for a special session to try to figure out how to mitigate the danger that this election poses. Legislature refused. Governor called a special session. The legislature gaveled in and out in, I think it was five seconds. The governor then declared an emergency to move the election. The Supreme Court of Wisconsin overturned that. We've gone up to the Supreme Court on the issue of how to count outstanding absentee ballots for those who have tried to bring them in. Supreme Court said we can't do that. So it's really been chaos.
4: Governor Evers' leadership has been pretty much non-existent. I would say weak and ineffectual is being pretty generous he had the right idea that he didn't have the power to stop this election. He didn't have the idea that he needed to go and work cooperatively with the legislature in order to make changes. That is unfortunate. After saying for weeks that the last thing he wanted to do was to try to stop the election on the day before, then yesterday, that's exactly what he did. So we had rulings yesterday from the U.S. Supreme Court, from our state Supreme Court. We also had cases in district, federal courts?
0: I think the most amazing thing is the patience of the people in line, standing six feet apart, wearing their masks. It is a gray overcast day today here in Wisconsin, and they're out trying to vote and doing their best to do it safely. The poll workers, I have friends who are poll workers who are wearing their masks and their coveralls and their gloves and are out there trying to do what they can to make today an effective election day. Those people give joy to my heart while it breaks because they shouldn't have to be doing this and risking their health, maybe even their lives in the face of this pandemic.
4: Just like we've kept our grocery stores open, you can still go to Target, you can go to Walmart, and so on, and you can learn to do that and do it safely. Elections are as critical or more critical in a time of crisis. This is exactly when we need our democracy to function.
1: John Fazman, talk me through that. I mean. Milwaukee is a city of 600,000 people, and it had five polling stations when the election was run on Tuesday. I spoke to a friend in Milwaukee who lives on the city's north side um, on Sunday, and he said that nobody was voting in his neighborhood. People were afraid to go out to polling stations. Listening to Dean Knudsen, this wasn't really such a hiccup. It was Milwaukee's fault that there weren't more polling stations. And the important thing here is to kind of soldier on and keep voting um, despite the epidemic.
3: What's your take on what really happened? Well, you also had the grim spectacle of Robin Voss, who is the Republican Speaker of the Wisconsin Assembly, telling voters that it was absolutely safe to go vote while wearing a hazmat suit. And so what you had is a whole lot of people who were frightened to go stand in line and vote. Wisconsin has absentee voting, but anecdotally a lot of people said that they had written in to request ballots weeks ago and they hadn't shown up. The most generous way to think of it, I suppose, is a state that hadn't fully grappled with what it means to hold an election during a pandemic. Other states with primaries postponed theirs, Wisconsin's couldn't because there were so many statewide offices that were being voted on this week. So you had a state confronting a very difficult question for the first time and really not meeting the challenge as far as its biggest city was concerned.
2: I thought it was so interesting to see those two perspectives juxtaposed because you have a very neat demonstration on how differently the narrative can vary depending on who you're listening to. What happened in Wisconsin this week was clearly an example. If you're interested in democracy and in enabling people to vote, it was a clearly an example of what not to do, both because there was not sufficient cooperation and flexibility within legislature to recognize that this is a pandemic and things will not run as normal. And because if you are going to have a plan, it shouldn't be changing up until the last minute. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and her dissent in the Supreme Court ruling, I think put it very well. She said either they will have to brave the polls. She's speaking about Wisconsin voters. Either they'll have to brave the polls, endangering their own and others' safety, or they will lose their right to vote through no fault of their own. And that's really what happened in Wisconsin. And I don't think you can paper over that fact.
1: There is also, of course, a clear partisan dimension to this in the sense that cities in Wisconsin, as in much of the rest of America, lean Democratic rural areas, which haven't been hit by COVID-19 yet, thankfully, lean Republican. And so the sense of danger is much more acute in Democratic urban Wisconsin than it is in rural Republican Wisconsin. And that, one assumes, when the election results are all counted up, will have an effect on the outcome here. John, we say that Wisconsin sort of issued a warning to the rest of the nation in this week's Economist. What ought other states looking at Wisconsin, what what ought they to do? I mean, one proposal that Tony Evers had, which didn't go anywhere in the end, was to send mail-in ballots to every eligible voter in
3: the state. Is that a good idea? Should states do something else? What's your view? I think that's exactly what states should do. That is a good first step. You can also have extended in-person voting hours, but it's crucial to get a ballot to everyone who wants one. And I think mail-in elections is a way to do that. Now, I know that President Trump has raised concerns about voter fraud through mail-in elections. Those concerns are just invalid. California, Oregon, and a couple of other places in other states have been holding mail-in voting for several cycles with no evidence of an uptick in fraud. And Democrats in Congress have been pushing to include Increased funding for mail-in voting in the next installment of the rescue package, Republicans have been dragging their feet. I think when a party in a democracy knows that it owes its fortunes to fewer people coming out and voting, that's shameful. So I think Democrats should hold firm, should insist that this funding be included in the next rescue package, and states should start thinking really seriously, logistically, about how they're going to do this.
2: And that's already underway. There are a number of states, including Massachusetts, Virginia, but also West Virginia and Arkansas, which usually require an excuse to vote by mail, but they are temporarily opening up voting by mail to everyone because of COVID-19. And this is a very active debate among states how best to do this. I think Wisconsin will be a cautionary tale and help to drive those debates forward.
3: I wanna throw in one warning to Republicans, which is that their reflexive opposition to vote by mail may be misplaced. The groups that will be most nervous, presumably, about coming out to vote in person in November will be the at-risk groups, primarily older voters, which are also Republican voters. So I think in this case, it might behoove Republicans who join Democrats and think seriously about how to make it easier for everyone to vote, or they may see their voters less likely to go to the polls in November. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll get
1: into the surprising lessons from the history of Americans voting in a time of national crisis in just a minute. First, though, the usual reminder, all The Economist's COVID-19 coverage is available in one place at economist.com coronavirus. At the moment, it's free for non-subscribers. If you'd like to receive 12 issues for $12 or £12, sign up at economist.com pod2020. The link is in the show notes for this episode.
3: It's a phenomenal crowd, only topped by the number of people outside.
1: Six weeks ago, the campaign was in full swing. President Trump was in South Carolina.
3: Then let's begin, right?
1: Joe Biden's unlikely comeback there began a couple of days later no, they don't get it. and became the political story of the year so far.
3: We have lost nobody to coronavirus in the United States.
1: It already feels like ancient history. But for clues to how elections work in a pandemic, you have to go way back to the midterm elections of 1918. The Spanish flu killed nearly 700,000 Americans, but elections still went ahead that November, with some big changes. Bans on public gatherings deprived the campaigns of their main way of reaching voters. So campaign comms got an update Americans were spammed with mail shots. Campaign surrogates worked the newspapers. Election day was different too. The San Francisco Chronicle called it the first masked ballot in the history of America. Even then, there were reports of polls staying closed in California because citizens weren't well enough to vote. Turnout was a flaccid 40%. Even election night was subdued. Newspapers were banned from displaying the results outside their office buildings for fear of attracting crowds. Spool forward to 1944.
0: This classroom is one of the 130,000 places the country over in which American citizens are going to cast their votes today. The
1: US was again voting at a time of national crisis.
0: Here it is, in the privacy of this curtain space, that the American voters every four years, on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, choose their national government.
1: Millions of Americans were mobilised overseas. For
0: those who cannot come to the polls, an absentee ballot is provided, and the voting is supervised by the local notary. This is the same kind of ballot that in this wartime election is sent to members of the armed forces at home and abroad.
1: But the effort to change federal laws to give them absentee ballots became tangled in partisan bickering over states' rights. In the end, service turnout was low, Franklin Roosevelt's fourth mandate was his slimmest.
0: Because I think a lot of
3: people cheat with mail voting.
1: Even in adversity, Americans manage to keep their constitutional duty to hold elections.
3: You should vote at the booth and you should have voter ID.
1: They just don't make it easy.
3: Because when you have voter ID, that's the real deal. Thank you very much. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: John Fassman, one of the things I get asked fairly frequently is whether the presidential election in November could be postponed because of the virus. Clear up the rules on that for us, if you
3: will. Yeah, I've heard that concern too. And the short answer is no. Congress has the power to determine when and how to hold elections. And federal law, passed in 1948, stipulates that the presidential election shall be held on Tuesday in the first full week in November every four years. Congress could change that, but Democrats control the House, and there's no way they're going to cede that power to Trump. The other thing to bear in mind is that the 20th Amendment states that the president's term ends at noon on January 20th, so that even if Trump were to cancel the election, he would stop being president when he would have stopped being president anyway. I think a more realistic concern, though, is that Trump-aligned state officials could manipulate who gets to vote on Election Day. And we saw a version of that happen in Wisconsin, where voters in Democratic-leaning Milwaukee had to suffer much longer lines and fewer poll workers than voters in rural and conservative parts of the state. By law, Wisconsin allows no excuse absentee voting, but you know, anecdotally, we saw stories of people who said they requested ballots weeks ago, and they hadn't shown up. And you can imagine election officials in right-leaning states mailing ballots to voters in conservative parts of the states quickly and taking their time getting them to voters in cities. I think people concerned about free and fair elections should be thinking about how to counter these types of manipulation rather than worrying about the president canceling elections outright.
2: One of the interesting things about COVID-19 is that it has illuminated different phenomenon within American culture and politics that are unusual and distinctive. That includes our safety net, which is very different than Europe's. It also includes this issue of voting rights and turnout. And for a long time, we've seen with different voter ID laws a debate between the right saying that they're trying to protect the integrity of elections and the left saying they're trying to systematically disenfranchise voters by making it harder to vote. And this is playing out in a really clear way as states grapple with how elections might be held during the age of COVID-19. But Trump on Fox put it pretty plainly, and if there's any confusion about what's actually going on here, you can just listen to the president's own words, Democrats had sought $2 billion funding for absentee and vote-by-mail options in the most recent rescue bill. They got much less than that, $400 million. And the president said on Fox, he said, the things they had in there were crazy. They had things, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. So you just have to listen to what he's saying explicitly. This is not implicit. This is explaining quite clearly what's happening here. And you don't have to imagine what the president's intention is. You just have to listen to his own words. And I think that, as with many other issues, COVID is laying plain what the debate is over voting rights in 2020.
1: And as with many other issues, the president said the thing out loud that he wasn't really meant to say.
3: Exactly. I mean, the striking thing about that attitude is that Republicans have won presidential elections handily over the past 40 years. And the ideas that are supposed to define the party, small government, a light regulatory hand, low taxes, those are all pretty popular and they could run on those ideas. The problem is the party is now centered around Donald Trump, who is himself a deeply unpopular president. And so instead of running on ideas that have won elections before, that could win elections again, they need to worry about how to get fewer people to vote because Donald Trump himself is so unpopular and because he is the center of the party now. That doesn't have to be the case. And for most of the history of the Republican Party, it wasn't the case.
2: It did, however, precede Donald Trump, just to jump in. I remember I had this very distinct experience as a young reporter. I was in Kentucky for a governor's race, and I was driving through poorer area of Louisville, Kentucky, with a Republican strategist. And I just remember him saying very distinctly, as he saw the number of signs in front of different housing complexes and saw evidence that people were getting to the polls, he said, oh, this is really worrisome. This is not good for us. And I was so struck in my naive way that he was worried not about how Republicans could better win over these voters with their ideas, but that these people shouldn't be showing up at all. And so absolutely, this has become more exaggerated in recent years, but it's not a phenomenon that the president invented.
3: So John Prittle, should we just expect that turnout will be low during a time of pandemic, even if elections do go on? It seems like a reasonable assumption, doesn't it? I mean, we don't yet have the turnout figures from
1: Wisconsin, partly because there was a fair bit of mail-in voting, but it seems highly likely that turnout in that statewide Supreme Court race was way down. If you look at the Illinois Democratic primary on 17th of March, the number of voters was down by almost a quarter on 2016. So yes, it seems likely to me that if this is still going on in some parts of the country in November, then turnout will be significantly down. Well, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to dig deeper into what the crisis is doing to President Trump's approval ratings, and also to look at how campaigns are changing. President Trump appears almost daily at a White House media briefing. He's been hammered in the press for failing to prepare the country for the coronavirus outbreak. But a recent Economist YouGov poll found his approval rating was the highest it's been since he took office. We asked Elliot Morris, the Economist's polling expert, to explain what's going on.
5: It's called the rally around the flag effect. It's a pattern that political scientists have been observing in leaders' approval ratings after periods of international crises. The canonical example is the surge in support for Jimmy Carter after the Iran hostage crisis in November of 1979. His approval ratings shot up by about 30 percentage points. This is not the only example. George H.W. Bush got a sizable boost in his ratings after the onset of the Gulf War and Operation Desert Storm. His son George W. received an unparalleled boost after the September 11th terrorist attacks in 2001. Barack Obama also received a short boost after US troops killed Osama bin Laden. Donald Trump is experiencing a similar, if not much smaller, bounce in his approval ratings today. His ratings have increased from about 43% in January and February to 46 or 47% today. The United States is not the only country that sees these rallies around the flag, however. The UK seems to be rallying around Boris Johnson. His ratings have increased pretty incredibly from the mid-40s to the mid-60s. We might expect his ratings to even increase even more as he's hospitalized because of COVID-19, which might uh, engender some more sympathy from the public. France's Emmanuel Macron, Germany's Angela Merkel, Justin Trudeau in Canada, they've all seen uh, sizable bumps in their popularity because of the outbreak. What's unusual about Trump is that his bounce is quite small. Sky-high levels of political polarization today have simply limited the boost that presidents will see from foreign crises. Uh, Most people are locked into their political preferences. Evidently, a pandemic is not enough for most of them to alter their perceptions of the president. This is interesting, however, because Trump's ratings have increased the most among unlikely supporters, among independents and Democrats. It's a significant shift. The president hasn't been able to crack 10% among Democrats for most of his tenure. Now he's at 15%, maybe closer to 20%. But it's bad news because Democrats are very polarized against him. They typically see him as a toxic leader. If they're coming on board now in a search for some sort of person to unify the country, when either that doesn't happen because Trump's leadership proves to be the typical brand of Trump's leadership we've seen over the last three years, or as the crisis fades from public consciousness, we should expect Democrats to turn back into the disapprovers of Trump that they've been for much of his presidency thus far. So, John,
1: as we heard from Elliot, Donald Trump's approval ratings are up, despite what you might have read about his handling of the COVID-19 crisis. How's he making the most of that in
3: his online campaigning? And, and what's Joe Biden up to? Well, both campaigns have switched to online programming. And the good news for both campaigns is that their programming is equally awful. And so no one seems to have a clear advantage. No one has figured that out yet. I've watched two nights of Donald Trump's programming. The first night was Black Voices for Trump, which featured three of Trump's African-American supporters talking about how great Donald Trump's policies were for African-Americans without ever really specifying which ones and how. The second night was Lara Trump talking to Sarah Sanders. And that also was partly airing grievances about the media, but it was also just strikingly full of falsehoods. Sanders said that the president had stopped travel from China and Europe, and that's just not true. She also said that he is the perfect president for this time because we need someone who's unconventional and not lost in the bureaucracy. Well, in fact, what we need to have an effective mobilization under the Defense Production Act is someone who can ride herd on the bureaucracy to make sure things get done. The other striking thing about both nights is that they're really just sort of low energy, low production values. You know, it was like Romanian public access TV from the 1980s. Joe Biden has had two episodes of his podcast, Here's the Deal, so far, One has featured him talking to Ron Klain and the other one was him talking to Gretchen Whitmer. Podcasting really isn't his format. He rambles a lot and this format lets him ramble. And he's best in a room with a lot of people responding to their energy and he's alone here. I think he probably could use a co-host, someone who can keep things moving by asking him questions. And uh, he needs to act less like a podcast host and like a president-in-waiting. There's a tremendous opportunity for him that he's really not capitalizing on. If you remember Barack Obama in the fall of 2008 during the financial crisis. He acted like a shadow president. And one reason that was so effective was because the executive branch was then hamstrung and fairly dysfunctional. And this one is even more so and Biden should be exploiting that. Uh, John, just to pick you up on something you said there, you said that
1: President Trump didn't stop travel from China and Europe. He, he stopped Chinese nationals from traveling to America at a certain point, didn't he? And he stopped European nationals from traveling from Europe. Your point is that he didn't stop Americans um, traveling from either of those places. And I suppose, crucially, when they arrived in the US, there was no contact
3: tracing, no real attempt to see whether they were bringing coronavirus in with them. You're absolutely right. He did stop some people from coming to the States, but there are still planes going between the US and China and between the US and Europe. And when people get off those planes, they're checked at the airport, but there's no contact tracing, no quarantining. So the virus can still travel from one to the other. Yeah, the virus isn't a great respecter of citizenship. Right, exactly.
1: So, John, what difference do you think Bernie Sanders withdrawing from the race makes
3: to Joe Biden? I think it does a couple of things. First, it removes whatever small cloud of uncertainty hung over Biden's campaign. He is now the presumptive nominee, and that makes it easier for him to speak as a sort of shadow president or president-in-waiting. It also frees up surrogates who had been standing on the sidelines waiting to see who would emerge. So Barack Obama, for instance, can come out now in full-throated support of his vice president. And it really lets Biden run a general election campaign starting now. Since Sanders dropped out, there've been lots
1: of counterintuitive takes. Journalists love to be counterintuitive, saying that even though Bernie Sanders lost, he actually won because he moved the Democratic Party to the left and Democratic candidates have adopted lots of his socialist positions. Do you think that's right? Or do you think those folks in their kind of eagerness to sound fresh are getting the wrong end of the stick?
3: Um, I think that has all of the elements of a hot take manufactured to be a hot take. It's presumptuous. It may ultimately be true. But in the same way, you didn't really see the full impact of Barry Goldwater's influence that Barry Goldwater who won the Republican nomination in 1964. You didn't see his influence emerge until Ronald Reagan won in 1980. You're not going to see Sanders' full influence until a directly Sanders-inspires candidate wins the nomination. Maybe that will happen and maybe it won't. And it's certainly true that the party has shifted leftward, but I think that's due to a number of factors and not just to Sanders himself.
2: In recent weeks, you saw Bernie Sanders trying to break through all of this news around COVID-19 by describing how the crisis illuminated the need for Medicare for All. And that message for Medicare for All certainly was a huge part of the Democratic discussion a few months ago, and it doesn't seem as relevant now. I do think, though, as Democrats continue to debate the contours of the next rescue package, and as more and more Americans lose their jobs, unemployment claims this week again were around 6 million, which brings the total to 16 million people. I mean, it's just a historic loss of jobs that we've seen in recent weeks that Some of Bernie Sanders' influence might be seen as we think about how best to support people who've lost their jobs, how best to get people back to work, that this discussion around America's social safety net will be very live. And I think that he will play an important role and his ideas will play an important role in that debate within the left.
1: John, what are your assumptions about what happens to disappointed
3: Bernie Sanders supporters in November and and where they go? I think the answer to that depends a lot on how Bernie Sanders himself behaves in the near term. If he full-throatedly endorses Joe Biden, or at least makes a passionate case for why his supporters should vote for Joe Biden, then he brings most of his voters with him. If he doesn't, then I think there's a real danger that some of them may not turn out at all or may drift to a third party.
2: There's another factor here, which is that Bernie Sanders supporters thought that he would be able to bring a historic wave of new voters to the polls, that he would be expanding the electorate in a way that would not just help him defeat Donald Trump, but would help Democrats take the Senate, would expand their hold of the House of Representatives. And that wasn't quite borne out in the primaries that we saw. Bernie didn't succeed in dramatically expanding the electorate. Now the conversation has really shifted, as we discussed, to more basic questions of having the existing electorate, people who voted in past elections, be able to vote safely this time around. So one question, which was about dramatically expanding the electorate, has really shifted to a more basic one of helping people on a very simple level vote.
1: Well, that brings us back to Wisconsin and the fiasco this week, Charlotte. Allow me to end this podcast on a note of hopelessly naive optimism, because I think everybody needs a dose of that during a pandemic. It would be great if COVID-19 prompted a real debate in America about how to get more people to vote. That will probably involve in this cycle more voting remotely. There are ways to make that happen that don't risk an increase in electoral fraud. You could learn lessons from how Colorado does it, how Washington state does postal voting. America's really overdue a dose of voting reform and political reform more generally. So let's hope that at least some other time while we're locked down, we can get a bit of a debate going about that kind of political reform in America. i to into that. Okay, thank you both. It's quiz time. We spoke a little bit earlier about the 1944 election when FDR won an unprecedented and unconstitutional fourth term. An Economist article from May 1943 expressed astonishment that a US president might manage a fourth term, but conceded that it was likely given the weakness of the Republican field. The Economist did favour one candidate. Do you guys have any guesses as to who that candidate might have been? Was it... uh... It it wasn't Dewey, right? That was forty. It was not Dewey. Charlotte, do you have an inkling?
2: I really don't, is the truth. I'm trying to think who would have been there. MacArthur ran that year, didn't he?
1: I'll put you both out for your misery. The answer is Wendell Wilkie. Wilkie made, for a politician at the time, a highly unusual wartime visit to which country in 1941? Germany? (laughs) Did he go to Britain? He did go to Britain. What vital equipment was he missing when he arrived in London? Uh, A passport? Suitcase? He was missing his helmet and his gas mask, both of which were pretty useful in London in 1941. Winston Churchill had to supply Wilkie with the relevant PPE so he could survive the Blitz. Right, right.
2: The truth is, is that I've been saying for weeks now, far before COVID, that I need to be reading up on my American history. And I think today... Was finally the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I have some time on my hands, and the Wi Fi connection in our rental house is not that great. So I'm going to pull out some American history books, and just you wait. The next weeks, I'm going to be an absolute ringer.
1: Okay, well, I look forward to that. That's a challenge issued, John Fasman. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. See you both next time. Be well, John. Bye. That's all from us please give us a review and a rating on your podcast app. The Economist Asks podcast this week features an interview with IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva. You can find all our podcasts by searching for Economist Radio in your podcast app. Subscribe to make sure you're not missing anything. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.